0: hello all and good evening welcome on board flight 2421 with service to richmond this is your captain herbert donovan speaking and i have some information on your flight our flying time today will be one hour and 53 minutes with an estimated time of arrival of 7:46 local time the weather on our route is looking good so i'm expecting little turbulence and the temperature at our destination is ripe for a Perfect landing, setting the stage for what will be my last flight before retirement. You see, I turn 65 tomorrow and this will be my final journey after 41 wonderful years as a commercial airline pilot. I've logged over 37,000 flight hours in the friendly skies. I've had both ups and downs, literally and figuratively. But I've loved this job, so did my dear wife, Eleanor, who we sadly lost last year to Ellie and I. We we raised two fine children, both Jacob and Sharon. They're all, all growing up now, with kiddos of their own to look after. Well, I sure as heck do love being a pilot, but I don't love it nearly as much as being called grandpa, or as much as I adore being husband to my Ellie for 39 brief, beautiful years. You know, before I flew for this airline, I earned my wings in the United States Air Force in active combat. Freedom isn't free, but I was happy to risk it all. It's an honor to serve this country, but it is my absolute privilege to serve you wonderful passengers for one last time here tonight.
1: i co-pilot, my name is Chloe, and I'm transgender.
0: 41 hours. This is how I like get it. I'm like getting the same time, huh? Really? Yeah. Good game! Yeah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Normal World. I'm Dave Lando. I'm Quarterback. Quarter, I can't speak already. You forgot your own name, <laughs> I forgot like my Mitch name, McConnell. I had a shutdown. <laughs> yes, like a dying turtle. Anyway, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show, and of course, Angela. Hi.
2: It's you, me. You make a handsome man.
1: I've heard that. Thank you. And this weekend you can join me at the Funny Bone in Omaha, Nebraska. That's right. So come on out. Matt McClowry will be there July 28th and 29th. But without further ado, I am very excited to bring on uh, this guest. He's a a speaker, an author, a podcaster. I love his podcast, uh, The Wise and the Wise Guy. Uh, TV personality and, of course, uh, former made member of the Colombo organized crime family. Please welcome Michael Franzese. Hello, Mr. Franzese. How are you?
3: Doing well, thank you.
1: And you? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling in.
3: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me.
1: You have so much that I want to ask you, so I'm just going to try.
3: Yeah,
2: we're going to, to try to fit it into this small amount of time
1: that we have with this, you. This tiny amount of time. Like, you, you were born in New York, and I find your story very interesting because you were actually in med school when you... Is, is that right? You were in med school when your father went away for bank robbery... And then That's you decided, right. yeah, and you, you decided to then join organized crime, but your father had just gone away for bank robbery. And I'm kind of wondering like why you would jump into that profession knowing what just happened. And I, and I mean that in all seriousness.
3: Well, my dad, you know, received a 50 year prison sentence right. and he was 50 years old when he went in. And, uh, I believe uh, my dad was innocent that he was mm-hmm. framed on that, you know, bank robbery, uh, conviction and uh you know 50 years old when he went in you figure at 50 on top of that he would die in prison and so um my dad told me he was innocent of that crime and i wanted to help him out and he thought the best way to help him was to become you know to follow him in his life because we had to go after witnesses that falsely testified and we need money for lawyers mm-hmm. we needed you know political connections the whole bit so Long story short, he proposed me for membership uh, when I was 22 years old.
1: That's incredible. And wow, that really is just incredible, though. And then were you ever part of that life before? Like, I mean, I'm sure you grew up around it, but were you kind of brand new to it at that point?
3: Well, you know, I I mean, I grew up with my dad, who was, you know, a a very important figure in that life. And uh, he was a major target of law enforcement. He was uh, always... uh, you know, uh, profiled in the media a lot, so I knew all about the life. I met all of his guys, but I was on a different course. You know, I was going to be a doctor, so I was familiar with the life in that regard, but I hadn't been involved myself. My dad didn't want me to be involved until all of this happened.
1: That's really, uh, yeah. That's just a fascinating and incredible yeah. story to just kind of pivot like that, and and then of course you ended up going to prison. So. Yes. And then, it, what's so, interesting is, yeah, you and your dad never ratted, obviously, yeah, because you're still here. And then, sorry, Garrett, I was going
2: to ask you—you've come to Christ since then. Uh, did you did you start following Christ while you were still in prison, or was that an after after you were released? I, I don't know the early story about that. Well,
3: you know, the way you know the short story is, I met a young girl um, who was a young Christian. Her mother was a solid Christian. Mm-hmm. She was 20 years old. I met her. And so she kind of, you know, opened the door to that faith for me. Uh, we, we happen to be, uh, you know, married for 38 years. Tomorrow we'll be celebrating our 38th year anniversary. But
1: Congratulations. Yeah, very cool.
3: Thank you. She, uh, you know, she opened the door for me. But, you know, when I accepted that prison sentence for 10 years, uh, the last three years, 29 months and seven days, they had me in solitary. Mm-hmm. And it was in solitary that, you know, a prison guard handed me a Bible. And that's when I started my journey. And, you know, every day, every single day without fail, I read my Bible. I mean, I read it inside and out over those years. I had my wife send me in, you know, several books on all different faiths. So I was uh, I was studying. I was really in a search for the truth. And I just came out there solidly believing in Christianity based upon my research, scripture and, and and everything else that I read. What was it that
2: like you connected to specifically? Because a lot of people have different ways that they kind of come into the faith. What was it specifically for you?
3: You know, I connected with Jesus and the way I did it, just so you understand, you know, my whole life, all I ever heard from my dad uh, was that you got to be a man's man. That's the standard in life you have to live up to. Uh, When I got into the life and I got made, you know, they told me the same thing. We're men of honor. We're men above men. So, you know, we had a certain standard that we had to live up to. And so when I realized that our Christian faith was based upon the life of Jesus, I separated his deity from his manhood. And I wanted to see what kind of man he was. Mm And I was so attracted with uh, to the character of Jesus and the way he conducted himself. And I just came away with this conclusion, you know, if I try to emulate the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth, I'm going to benefit throughout my life. Any Everybody that's uh, around me is going to benefit. And, uh, you know, if he wasn't the savior of the world, well, well I'm dead. I'm dead anyway. So what, what did I lose? But since yeah. I believe that he is the savior of the world, you know, we have all of heaven to gain. So that's. That's my conclusion, and it's worked for me uh, ever since, and that was 27 years ago.
1: And in there also, did you find—I see that you have these other passions, and one of them is also one of our passions, which is film. And is that when you started writing scripts? Because I know you you wrote your first screenplay in prison, right?
3: That's correct, yes.
1: Did you end up selling that one? No,
3: I I didn't. Uh, I wrote it just, you know, I was passing time. But I got involved in the film business back in, uh, you know, the mid-'70s.
1: As a producer, I, yeah, right?
3: As a producer, I, I produced a, a horror film back then and just got a little bit of the bug. I got into the industry when the industry was different back then. I bought a distribution company and produced and, and uh, distributed about 30 films. And it was a film that I was producing that I met my wife on. I mean, she was a, a dancer in the film and, uh, you know, fell in love and we were married 38 years. So it worked out for me.
1: Which I got to ask this: of all the movies that are made about the mafia, what one is the most accurate
0: that you would okay.
3: say? Now this is going to be kind of crazy to you, but I've said it repeatedly, and I believe it: the HBO Gotti movie with Armand DeSantis, um, and uh, Anthony. Yeah. Absolutely brilliantly done and very accurate because much of it was taken off of the surveillance tapes, and it was it was it was just it was just so brilliant, all of it. Um, you know, having said that, you know, obviously Goodfellas is fairly accurate. Um, they always take dramatic liberty with these, with these movies. Donnie Brasco, fairly accurate. Um, uh, Casino, fairly accurate. And of course, Godfather one and two, they were fictional, um, wonderful films, you know, two of the best films ever made, but they were more fictional than fact.
1: Was the Tangier supposed to be, which hotel do you, are you allowed to say Mm -hmm. that? I don't know if I'm supposed to know.
3: Yeah, it was the desert
1: inn. It was the desert ah. inn. That's what I thought. Okay, and uh, all right. That's for now. Well, one, fl- I want to flip it. What do you think is the most inaccurate? Yeah, that's a good point.
3: Uh, you know, there were so many. I mean, I assume like
1: analyze this would probably be up there. <laughs>
3: yeah, you know that was that was more of a, a of a comedy film, but.
1: But it's a good you know, movie. I, Chaz is in yeah. that, who you do a show very, with. But yeah, it's hilarious. But I would yeah, imagine uh, you'd be killed pretty quickly.
3: <laughs> no, I I love the movie. I thought uh, you know Billy Crystal was amazing. He's so funny in that movie. Yeah, uh, De, Niro, De Niro is always great. Yeah. But um, you know, The Sopranos. I, I get asked about that a lot, and. Um, I mean, it was, look, it was one of the greatest TV series. It certainly set the stage for all the series that followed. It was br- brilliantly done, but it wasn't really accurate, you know, a lot of it. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, now the uh, uh, Godfather of Harlem, uh, totally inaccurate, uh, but it's okay. I mean, you enjoy watching the series, you know, they're not yeah. documentary. So what's the difference?
1: Is that about Bumpy, who was in Harlem? I th- is that Was that his name, The Politician? I yeah, it was.
3: Bumping. You bump. know, they try, They tried to show that you know Gigante, who was the boss of the Genovese family, and and all of the families were so deeply involved in the drug trade in Harlem, and that's just not true. Uh, the way it's depicted in that in that, uh, and I've spoken to the you know the uh, what's his name, Chris Columbus, I, I forget his last name, but anyway, I spoke to the producer and I told him that I said, look, I enjoy watching it; it's great, but it's not accurate at all. Mm. And, right. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's uh what's by far your favorite like was the because the colombo you were part of the colombo crime family and recently obviously that came to paramount was the i will call I, and you're probably friends with them i, I so i don't mean in any disrespect with the l ruddy story because it certainly favors him in the paramount um yeah. uh, show which is a really good show actually but was that fairly accurate to what happened that you uh, with the making of the Godfather?
3: Well, let's put it this way: that was my era. I was intimately involved in that because I was very close to Joe Colombo and the Italian American Civil Rights League.
1: That's what I thought. Yeah, I thought
3: the series. Yeah, I thought the offer was brilliant. I thought it was so well done. Yeah, the acting was terrific. Obviously, it was seen through the eyes of Al Ruddy. He made himself a little more of a hero than he actually was at that time. Uh, Giovanni Robisi, who played Joe Colombo. In episode one, I was a little upset because he played Joe Colombo like he was kind of a buffoon.
1: A little bit of and a slut, yeah.
3: But he, he, he. Um, He grew into the role a lot better, and I was more happy as it went along. But uh, it it was pretty accurate. We had a lot to say. When I say we, I'm talking about Joe Colombo. He had a lot to say about that film. He did take Mafia out of the script. He did stop work when uh, they called a strike, when things weren't going their way. But he also did have a relationship with Al Ruddy. We used to have meetings at the Park Sheridan Hotel, and Ruddy was there once or twice. And we talked about the film, you know, quite a bit and how it was going. And Ruddy, you know, promised that it wouldn't be uh, demeaning to Italian-Americans. So depending on how you look at it, uh, it wasn't bad. But, you know, I can tell you this, guys on the street after The Godfather came out, Guys started carrying themselves differently. Mm. I mean it, it kind of elevated the level of prestige of that life. I mean, it really did and guys saw it that way. They weren't upset at all.
1: Yeah, it seemed to be uh, at least for Romantic and time obviously not uh, you know of that era, but it seemed like being a gangster was sort of frowned upon and then after that it sort of became more of glorified. Yeah, I made mean, it look cool. Absolutely. Which is, Absolutely. and my, my, uh, my friend's uncle is uh, Johnny Russo. I hope I'm saying that right. Was that actually true that he was beaten badly by James Conn, or was that sort of for uh, effect?
3: No, that was true. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> was true.
1: Okay, I had a feeling. I had a question. Since, so
2: you've worked, you've been in both lives, right? You've produced film, you were in the mafia life what do you see parallels in kind of today's Hollywood apparatus and uh, between those two lives
3: uh, not really I mean you know Hollywood the condition of Hollywood now I mean it's if I can use the term woke, it's become so woke it's just uh yeah. I like it better way back when just like I like Vegas way back when you know i don't I don't like the way things are, are headed right now in many ways so. Uh, and, you know, we had we had a little more involvement back then than we have now. I don't know if any guys are still involved in that industry, you know, but, you know, as far as uh, films and music, we were extremely involved in, in both of those industries. And um, and I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed it back then. It's different now.
1: It's not well, as yeah. good, I could say. Yeah, they didn't want to use the mafia back then. And now it's just can you imagine a woke mob? Oh like, my it'd just be the worst movie <laughs> just using no. pronouns before you shoot a guy. Girl, she, well, what him if, you know, Whatever it is that's just is. an awful We should write it We should write that down <laughs> The, <laughs> the environmentally, that down. Uh, environmentally conscious we did already Oh yeah we did. Already we did, we came up it. with we it it's the environmentally it. conscious uh, mobster Yeah, yeah. He, drives, <laughs> he drives a Tesla
3: <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be seeing that anytime soon No, nobody no. would
1: like it I'd probably get waxed just for making it or, or clipped as they say in the uh, Armanda Asante HBO film Clipped is the term always yeah. used. Is there a story you would like to see related to the mafia that's mm-hmm. never been told uh, on film?
3: Well, my own story is in development right now. Good for you. Um, read to that after you know twenty some odd years, and uh, I'm really pleased with the way it's uh, de- developing so far. We have a script, and it's actually been developed as a television series, and we have uh, we have three seasons, ten episodes a season. And we were just about to bring it out when the strike hits. So uh, it's delayed until whenever the strike is over. But there's no rush. You know, it'll it'll happen. But I'm pretty happy the way the story is being told. And, um, you know, I'm a bug for authenticity. When I see a mob-related movie, the characters have to be uh, authentic. The dialogue has to be Mm -hmm. authentic. And, um, you know, we'll capture that in this series, obviously. Um, And I'm excited about it. I think they're going to do a good job.
2: I got a question. You may not be able to answer it because you're in development. Yeah. But if you were going to cast somebody to play yourself, who would you pick?
3: You know, it's crazy that I can't. Answer, you know, I can't answer that because you know the answer would be unrealistic. Some of the, excuse me, greatest actors out there probably wouldn't be available for a, a television series. But they want to get somebody fairly new. They're talking about I don't even know their names. They're talking about some hot young actors because. Um, uh, you know, I think it starts out, I'm I'm in my 30s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they're, they're picking somebody for my dad because the story hinges a lot on the relationship between me and my father. Um, so I, I don't know. You know, they asked me, they said, Michael, who do you want to play you? And I said, well, I know, uh, you know, that uh, casting means a lot. So how about Denzel Washington? I know that'll get it made.
1: <laughs> You're like Keenan Thompson. I mean, like Netflix perfect. is like, yeah. <laughs> Let's go.
3: You want to get it made, you know? So whoever whoever takes it over the finish line is fine with me, you know? Yeah.
2: And sometimes it's really good to get an actor that's unknown so then audiences connect to the character and not the actor. So if, like, it was somebody like Denzel, I know it was a joke, but they're seeing Denzel. They're not seeing the character that you wrote.
1: Well, they want to see you in the story and then right. it is your story as opposed to that actor's story.
3: Well, the way they have designed it, you are going to see some of me in this because the you know, whenever you bring a a, a story, the whole thing is, well, what's the take? You know, the mob genre has been done. What's the new take? What's different, even though it's a different story? So, you know, their new take on the story, which were they're were very uh, excited about, was having me actually involved. And I can't tell you how, but uh, I do pop up in certain ways. And I, I give you a little example. You know, there could be a scene. I'll go, oh, oh, wait a minute. That's not how it happened. Let me tell you how it really happened. And right. then it goes in another direction, you know, something like that. Well, it's cool
2: that you're that involved with the story and you can point those things out. I'm like, that, that's a little too far-fetched or bring it back over here because that's the kind of story – we want to tell.
1: Do you yeah. think right now, too, with the sag after? do you think that has a lot to do, I guess, it, if you don't want to answer, it's fine, too, but uh, with the strikes right now, do you think that movies are profitable, even, because it's all become kind of woke, or the, is TV is just going to be where it's at from mm-hmm. now on?
3: Well, you know, I was, uh, unfortunately, I will say this, um, my 11-year-old granddaughter asked me to take her to see the Barbie movie, so oh, no. being a grandpa that I am. I took her. Um, I don't want to comment on the movie. I mean, I would if you want me to. Me to but
2: I'd be uh,
1: interested. <laughs> Sorry. No, my, well,
3: I
2: watched the movie, too. Look. He's see? got daughters. I've got daughters. you got daughters. you got grandkids. Well, Look.
3: well, you know, it was great to see so many people in the theaters. And then I went to see Oppenheimer after that. The same thing. So yeah. it looks like movies are coming back. If good. there's a good film out there and people are interested, that's great. Um, but I still feel... You know, I don't think people 11 want to get away from the theaters. Um, but I think, you know, having streaming and the way it is now, I think it's going to continue to take a bite out of that. Yeah. You're going to have blockbuster movies and probably, you know, nothing else. That's that's my feeling. Because everything else will go straight to streaming or, or cable.
2: It'll become like a, it'll be, hey, let's all go to the movies every once in a while. It's not going to be the every weekend, let's go to that movie. It's going to be more like, hey, you, remember Bowling? That was a lot of fun. Let's go do that.
1: I always wonder, though, what, what's missing seems to be the story. Yeah. And I kind of miss that, though, where it's like, the, it, yeah, it's the Barbie movie. But, you know, th- we're missing the stories. And exactly, that's kind of yeah. what I want to see again in film. Because, I lo- like, you do a podcast with Chaz Terry mm-hmm. who's made all kinds of just amazing films. He's one of my favorite actors. Uh, a Bronx Tale, which was a stage play, but obviously is just one of the best films ever made, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, De Niro directed it. Um, how did you bump into him, actually? Did you know him w- prior to, uh, like, when you were younger, or how did you meet him?
3: No, briefly, but we've become very friendly over the last few years. And, uh, you know, I had him initially on uh, on my YouTube channel. And from that, we became just very good friends. You know, i got a lot in common. And uh, I love working with him. And, you know, he's—I I don't know if you know this, but I- I've just put a platform together with Mike Tyson— And uh, we're we're doing a platform called Champions Corner, and it's a subscription platform. Without getting into it, we're going to be launching it next month. But we're also doing live shows, uh, the first one being September 28th at the Beacon Theater in New York. And it'll be myself, Mike, and Chaz Palminteri will be on the stage. And uh, we put a show together, and I think people are going to enjoy that. And we're going to take it around the country. Dude, that's fantastic. sounds really cool. Our families of friends, you know, I, I love the guy. Honestly, I love his wife. I mean, you know, his kids. I mean, we we get along really well.
1: He's just such to me, like because I just grew up loving indie film because I was born in '82 and I kind of got into film in in the '90s boom of in, of indie film, mm. and that was sort of what he was just in everything, and that's what yeah. I just love about Chaz Palmenteri is like he was the quintessential sort of indie actor where they would use him in so much stuff. He's just phenomenal.
3: Well, I will tell you this, you know, and this was before I, I got close with Chaz, obviously. I told him his role of Sonny in that film was his best role ever. I agree. Without, he he played that to a T. It was just terrific.
1: Well, there's um, so many and, more. I, and I said to him, I said, sorry.
3: yeah, I said, don't get insulted, but it was your best role ever. I mean, I, I loved you in that film. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he wrote the script, as you know, and just some of the little, you know, now you just can't leave, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah. Which, I love that. With I the bikers? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I told him, Chaz, when you open our live show, as soon as everybody's seated, you got to come out with it. Now you just can't leave.
1: That's it. <laughs> We're locking the doors. Well, one of the yeah. best life lessons is for $20, you don't have to talk to that kid anymore. I remember <laughs> the first time I heard that, I'm like, that's the best <laughs> advice. Just And every single bit of advice he gives in that movie. And then I love how at the end you realize his misery is that he doesn't trust anybody in his mm-hmm. life, including this kid and it's it's all it all just sort of comes full circle and this kid kind of realized what's you know what's important and it also deals with an interracial relationship and and all this other stuff that just had never been touched on in that world it, yes It really and you know fascinating.
3: you know the he, he's been doing a live show for 30 some odd years and you know i've seen it a, a couple of times and it's have you seen it have you seen him on the stage uh
1: yeah in detroit
3: yeah i mean he, he just does a brilliant job it's just brilliant so i mean he's a very talented guy um you know i'll just give you a little inside scoop he is involved with me um in the development of the project so um and he had a lot to add to it
1: that's good news very cool um i know you talk a little bit about politics on your show and i just have to ask you a couple questions if you don't mind uh but one is um whose bad side would be worse to be on roy DeMeo or hillary clinton
3: well, you know what? At least with Roy, you know what you got, you know, and
1: <laughs> you know how
2: you're gonna die. Well, right I mean, you know how you're gonna die the other way too.
3: Hillary, man, that's 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 one bad woman. I can tell you that. You don't want to. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't want to be in the house with with her and Bill.
1: No. <laughs> I'm, I can just picture Bill shooting you, and then Hillary's the one stabbing you in the heart to get the blood to stop pumping. Exactly.
3: exactly.
2: Yeah, she's more aggressive. Sorry, she really I read Murder Machine.
1: She likes the connection.
3: Exactly. Yeah, she's, she's rough. I'll tell you that.
1: And I've always thought this, like, uh, during... I was, I was living in New York uh, when 2020, the whole thing happened. I was living uh, up in Harlem, and uh, we were doing a show on 35th and Broadway. Um. Do you think that city would be far better off if the mafia still ran it? Because I do, hundred percent. Okay, I just want to make sure I was right on that. <laughs> yeah, it seems to make sense.
3: If we were running around in that city, you wouldn't put a ha- you wouldn't have to have toothpaste behind glass with a lock and key on it. Uh, you know, L.A. the same thing. It's it's out of control. It's unbelievable. L.A. You is know, absolutely out of control. We took care of our neighborhoods. We didn't have any crime in our neighborhoods. You know, people that's why people wonder, why did people love John Gotti? You know, because we took care of our neighborhoods. You know, Mm -hmm. you had no crime in there. Took care of the people. Nobody was worried. Look, in in Greenpoint, where I grew up, my sisters can come home, walk the streets at two o'clock in the morning. Nobody worried about it. You wouldn't have half of the stuff that's going on. Believe me, we would have handled it. And uh, I'm telling you, you know, to see what's going on today, it's just it's so out of control. These politicians should be ashamed of themselves. Listen, I was a mob guy. You know, I wasn't exactly in love with the police. I was arrested 18 times. I had seven indictments. I went to trial five times and I did eight years in prison. But even I know, defunding the police is the worst idea you could ever have. <laughs> you know, I, I was funny. I was telling somebody once, I said, do you think if Giuliani would have came to me and said, hey, Michael, don't worry about it. You know, if we do indict you on this Rico case, you're going to get bail, no problem. We're only going to be a year in prison. Do You think I would have said, hey, great, now I'm going to go straight? No, right, I would have. Right. Did more stuff on the street. Yeah, the don't worry, it. <laughs> it's
1: a revolving door. Sorry.
3: I don't get it.
1: Defund- yeah.
3: Defund Police And look what's happening Look what's happening I don't know
1: No, it's horrible And I I remember seeing that Like outside of certain nightclubs There'd be like Just like all these people On the street And fighting And like shooting up And I'm like You know like in the 80s It'd just be a line of people And you would never even see that Like you wouldn't I remember the first time I went to New York It was probably in the 80s Late 80s, 90s And I just remember Mm -hmm. People could buy paintings Of John Gotti Like on every corner Like people loved him
3: They loved him You know, I mean, look, Mm. the law didn't like him and, you know, he, he could be a little difficult within the life. But people on the outside of the life had no problem with him. And, and most of the guys were like that. You know, Fat Tony Salerno in Harlem. You know, he had his social club there. That was his base of operations. They loved him there, the people in Harlem. You know, my neighborhood, too. I mean, I was, you know, we were very well liked because we took care of people. We didn't hurt them. They needed something they came to us. If we can handle something, we did it. You know, we, we didn't prey on the people that we uh, lived around, that we took mm-hmm. care of. And, um, you know, I'm telling you this, guys, without getting too political, there's guys in office that are worse than any mob guys I I ever came up against Mm. in my life. I really mean that. We wouldn't do some of the things that I see being done now. And I, I really mean that.
1: Well, yeah, I don't think you just hurt innocent people all the time right yeah i mean that's the best way i can put it i mean we have to be so vague on youtube and in different platforms i feel but that's what it seems i mean it's it's just taking from everyone all the time yeah. isn't it to the yeah, point where I, there's nothing left
3: exactly you know i mean it's you know the way to solve every problem is to go to the middle class and 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 you know make it more burdensome for them it's You know, listen, if we go into politics, you know, just let's pack a lunch and let's be here for the next
1: couple hours. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's the danger of it. Yeah, it really is, because I think we're going to see eye to eye on probably everything, especially when you open with, isn't the mafia great in New York the way they ran it better than any politician?
2: (laughs) Well, there is an interesting thing I've been thinking about that is that not that I'm endorsing the mafia, right, but the mafia is a very um, private citizen organization, well, very much so. And the government was like, "Well, you know, only we can be the ones breaking the law." So they came in and busted it all up. So I find that very the the parallels there.
3: Well, you know, I've been saying this for years, and I've said this, and, and listen, I went to a crime. I went to prison for a crime that I was guilty of. I pled guilty. I did my time. And my dad obviously did a lot of bad things in his life. I'm, I'm not sugarcoating anything, but the crime that he went to prison for, that he was convicted of and given fifty years, he was innocent of i'll take that to my grave because i investigated that case every witness recanted their testimony we gave them lie detect tests proved they lied at the trial we can never get the conviction overturned mm-hmm. and so many law enforcement people have told me michael you know we knew that was a bad case and you know what i told people all the time i said look when you give the government the ability to break the law to go after the criminals eventually they're going to use that same process to go after their enemies. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. You know, they're weaponizing the, the FBI, the Justice Department, to go after their political enemies. And that is so dangerous. It's dangerous for everybody, you know, and it started with, you know, all this cancel culture. Hey, we don't like what you're saying. You don't agree with our agenda. You're canceled. You know, one thing leads to another. It's like things start to drip a little bit until all of a sudden you got a flood of bad things going on. And that's what's happening right now. And, man, we need reform. We need reform at the uh, Department of Justice and the FBI in the worst way. And I know a lot of retired FBI agents that are saying the same darn thing. They're disgusted with what they're saying now.
1: Well, we've taken out a sense of community, and, that, and that's what we've destroyed inside. You know, we've taken yeah. out community out of out of the communities. Where, where, uh, that's the number one thing, I think, that's destroying mm-hmm. each other. And then you have the politicians, which I do think is interesting because with Gotti, at least from what I can tell, they were very mad at him for, you know, the $3,000 suits, the Teflon Don, having a house that I wouldn't say was really very obnoxious at all. But now you have all these other leaders who are supposed public servants, right? In these multi-million dollar homes. Isn't that uh, the most egregious thing When, yeah. in the most hypocritical thing when it's like you're taking down this guy for doing, you know, obviously, yes, he's a criminal, but... Like you took accountability for what you did And you served your time And I was listening to a podcast with uh, you and Chaz And you were saying that how You've never heard a politician take accountability And I was thinking about that for a while today Because it's true Like yeah. they live in these massive homes Flaunting it at you And I don't think Gotti was flaunting it in the same way Like certainly not like this Where you look at Pelosi's house Where it's like you know this 20 million dollar yeah. home In San Diego, San Francisco wherever San Francisco it is. San Francisco like, that's just,
2: it's stunning to me. And they're shutting down the city and going, No, you, you can't get a blowout, but I can because
1: I'm Nancy Pelosi. Or her husband getting a blow job from well, a man.
3: <laughs> yeah, getting a blowout.
1: <laughs> Sorry. And can't help it.
3: Yeah, and then blaming it on the woman who gave right. you the blowout. out you to come in there? You know, turn on her and his. Turn, uh, turn on her. Well, listen, how do you explain? They never have to answer for this. How do you explain how they come in? You know, a $200,000 a year job in government, and all of a sudden they become the best stock traders around, yeah. and it turns into millions of dollars and all of this, and they never have to explain themselves, you know, how they become multi-millionaires. You know, Nancy Pelosi, I can't understand the woman. a word that woman ever says. She never makes sense, <laughs> and yet she's worth a half a billion dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, come on. It's oh, a yeah. racket.
1: She has a mouthful of Tic Tac. She's always drunk like a lady at the tennis club who's on a bunch of Valium. It's just, and for some reason, yeah, she's a great, she's, she's great in, at trading all of it. She's been in the government for a million years. Well, it's because they're all getting these insider tips. And yeah. then you look at it and it's like, you locked up Martha Stewart because somebody gave her a little bit of an, of an edge. And meanwhile, all these people do nothing but insider trade yeah. right in front of us. Yeah.
3: Exactly exactly and uh you know listen most people are ignorant of this and i don't mean that in a demeaning way most people can't focus on that they're worried about you know supporting their family making a living you know working 40 hours a week they're not in tune with what these people are doing but you know you and i we have time to watch and see what's going on and listen i had a lot of politicians you know on the when i had my licenses for my gas business i couldn't get a license i had 18 licenses And I was paying off, you know, politicians to get it. And, um, uh, you know, but people don't know this. You know, they don't know it. And, you know, I've said this all the time. Every politician that we worked with on the street, they're all Democrats. And they said, well, why is that? I said, they they were easy to corrupt. You know, they were ready to go along with us. What Mm -hmm. could I tell you? The Republicans weren't back then. But, um, you know, ordinary people just don't know this. And you know this, if you turn on, you know, mainstream media, you're not seeing it anyway. So, so they don't know what's really going on. But I think uh, I'm a little bit encouraged that things are starting to come to light. I mean, this whole issue with Hunter Biden and Biden, you know, guys, look, uh. I had 18 shell companies, 18 of them. They had no brick and mortar uh, offices behind them. They did nothing But but have a bank account so I can put money in there and the money that I was putting in there, I was defrauding the government out of it was tax money. Yeah. You know, they've now now shown that there's, you know, 10 or 11 of these shell companies that did nothing but collect 17 million dollars and nobody's answering for it. Mm-hmm. It's so obvious to me what, what's going on. You know, it's a racketeering indictment right then and there, and nobody's answering for it. It's 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 almost comical if it wasn't so detrimental to this country. Yeah,
1: it's amazing, and you see it because you ran the same scam. But now the people that run the scam are the most powerful people in the world. Exactly. It's it's a shame. It's really dark. No, it is. But I'm just glad that, you know, people like you have spoke out. I'm glad yeah. that people that there's just people who are noticing. And I think you're right that there is something starting to turn because people are tired of it. You could only be I think once 2020 happened and certain things and you're still seeing the results of it. People losing everything is finally when people are like, look, I have to look into this because mm-hmm. I can't I can't live like this. I can't deal with this sort of uh, detrimental you know the society the way that everything's been especially their own life like i can't do this to my family i can't lose everything i can't watch whether people get rich while your portfolio for your ira gets you know deduced to half i think it's good that people are waking up
3: yeah i I think so too and you know they're so out in the open about what they're doing now it's I, i mean they don't even make attempts to really cover it up and the attempts that they make are so feeble in light of the evidence that's coming out, uh, I don't understand how, how they think they, you know, in a long run, how they can get away with this. I mean, there is a point where you got to realize eh, this is not going to last forever, man. You know, the gig's up. And I think, you know, what happened today in the court with Hunter Biden, you know, the judge wouldn't accept that plea Uh, I think I think the house of cards is starting to crumble. I really do.
1: I saw that, too. And I think it's good that it's because it's not just the laptop acts and the stuff that he did that were I understand addiction. I'm in recovery. I think people are, you know, there's a certainly ability to forgive. Yeah, there's a line, though. But there's this line of real corruption, though, that he was involved in that everybody ignored and all this other stuff was thrown in your face. to try to hide that. And now the real stuff is coming out. And and a judge can't say, well, no, this is fine. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, well, you know what they wanted in that plea was ridiculous. I mean, a slap on the wrist and then he has immunity from anything else. So meaning all investigations would have to stop. That's what they were hopeful for. Uh, everything would, cause he can never be prosecuted again. And once that's, you know, uh, accepted in court right. and the judge basically said, no, you're not going to do that to me in this courtroom. Cause I'm going to take the, uh, you know, the backlash of that afterwards, as this information continues to come out. And I just granted you immunity for all these other crimes. And she wasn't willing to do that. Um, you know, so listen, we'll see what happens in the next uh, couple of days. And, you know, I, I say the same thing. Look, I had a sister that, you know, died, unfortunately, of an overdose of drugs. My brother was a drug addict. Sorry to addict. hear that. Sorry. So, I, yeah, I have empathy for that. But it wasn't that this was confined to him personally. His behavior mm-hmm. has affected this country in, in a rough way. And, you know, people have said to me, you know, well, Joe Biden, what do you expect? He's supportive of his son. I said, look, I have two boys. If my son was doing this stuff, I would still love him but I would say hey stay away from the you you causing the whole problem here in this country for my administration but Joe Biden can't do that because he was complicit with Hunter.
1: Yeah. Right.
3: And he has to support him.
1: Well, enabling from enabling as a parent is bad enough but doing it from the highest power you know the highest office in the world yes. is bad enough but doing it when it's just to benefit you is just sick.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely and and you know, it's coming out. You know, guys, I have to say this. And, and again, please understand where I'm coming from. I was a criminal for 20 years, but we had a line that we wouldn't cross. At least I wouldn't. But, you know, I, the drug thing is very close to me because of, of what happened in my own family with my, my brothers and sisters. But, you know, I spoke to 850 Border Patrol agents from the state of Texas. I did a big seminar with them. And afterwards, we we talked. And there's some of the horrible stuff that they were telling me about things coming over the border between kids and human trafficking. Mm -hmm. They said they're not even getting five to seven to 10 percent of the illegal drugs that are coming across. They told me some horror stories that they personally encountered. And I'm saying to myself, we've elected a man to the highest office in the world. We put our trust in him. People did. To protect and defend this country, and to act in the, in their best interest of our country domestically, and of course against our enemies. And here's a guy that knows this is going on. A hundred thousand people died of opioid addiction last year, and it's coming across the border in droves. And you don't do anything to stop it. It's like, how do you live with yourself? Yeah. What what are you? I, and you know. I don't care if it was, you know, Donald Trump, I don't care, Republican, Democrat, I don't care if it was my own brother doing that, I'd be against him. And I I just don't understand it, guys. I don't understand how you can sleep at night and do things like that. I mean, guys on the street wouldn't do that. I mean it.
1: No, I, I believe it completely. And if it was affecting your own son and you saw it in your own house, and then you also saw how it was affecting America. Because mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who hasn't lost somebody to fentanyl. And this show is shot in Texas. Yeah. You know, it, it's a very serious thing. And they do nothing about it but loosen up the borders more. And it, regardless of where they're sent, anything else, it's, it's a serious issue. And it's going to get worse. And they know that. And nothing's being done about it. And that's the saddest part. I mean, a movie has to come out, you know, for people to start going, oh, there's human trafficking and and it's been hiding in plain sight forever. And I mean, you know that everybody knows that, but now it's, it's shocking people. And it's like, no, it's always been there. Oh, and even that
2: gets politicized and gets shot down when we have for years have known this has been a thing. So that's when you, I feel like that's when you know that there's really a problem when they try to silence it
3: no no doubt and uh it's horrible you know i say this you know as a person of faith i say it's demonic I, absolutely you know, it's it's demonic that they have control of people in this regard and it's causing just so much damage you know to innocent people and it's it's terrible i'm telling you if we don't have a real change here you know the next the next election i don't know where this country is going to go i really don't um, I don't want to see a revolution. I don't want to see people die. I don't want to see people you know burning businesses down again. We went mm-hmm. through all of that, but something has to change dramatically or this country is in a lot of trouble.
1: yeah, it's headed yeah. for a civil war and I don't want to see that either you know and well, that's what a lot of pe- how a lot of people feel yeah. and and, and I it don't... doesn't have to no, it doesn't have to at all.
3: does not have to and and listen, if God forbid it ever got to that point, you know we have enemies that are very strong in weight. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no joke. Um, and, and, and we don't want to leave ourselves that vulnerable. I mean, things I'm hearing about our military now, you know, we know Russia has, uh, even though they they kind of showed themselves in Ukraine, <laughs> yeah. they still have nuclear ability. That's that's very frightening. China, China you know, like, yeah. they have more warships than we have now more, you know, I mean, what are we doing? And, you know, we, we have a woke uh, military now, uh, you know the the idea that's in people's heads. I, it's just everything. Every, you know what I was laughing at? I mean, this may sound crazy. Even the dog in the White House now is biting CIA people. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it knows. It knows.
3: You can't even get the dog right. Everything <laughs> it touches turns into something bad. The dog senses evil.
2: <laughs> Michael. He yeah,
3: senses. Yes, yeah, they said he he. he he bit 10 people already, 10 CIA agents. Or One of them had to go to the hospital. That dog's is faced. That- is
1: <laughs> that's a good boy. Yeah, he just really hates it. It's a, that's a well trained dog. Oh, that's dog. <laughs> that's <laughs> what it is. He's just a really well trained dog. No problem. He's just dog. sniffing out the cocaine they keep finding.
3: <laughs> yeah, how do, how do you like that? Oh, it's, the, most secure, the most secure building in the whole country, maybe the world, cameras everywhere, just <laughs> probably every nook and cranny, you can't miss anything.
2: We can't okay. find it. We have to shut down the investigation. Yeah. We're never going to figure it out. Exactly.
1: Oh, yeah. It, it, Bush did it once in the 70s. We had to hear about it for eight years.
2: Right? <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> Meanwhile,
1: somebody just leaves it on you know, the desk in the Oval Office <laughs> and nobody has a clue where it no came idea. from. No idea. Like uh, must have been the like cleaning it. lady, I'm sure. It's, she's <laughs> Colombian. Like that's just like it's absurd any of that Yeah, that's the time we're living in. We're actually just running out of time, actually, but I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. And I do want to say that people can see you speak September 9th at the Robbins Theater in Warren, Ohio, September 23rd. You'll be at the Caesars Casino in Atlantic City for the uh, History of the Mafia. And September 8th through 10th, uh, you can go to uh, Franzi's Wine Tasting in the Cleveland area and buy his wine at com. Very nice. Hey, actually,
2: uh, I have one more question. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. Um did we uh, What did happened? we lose the connection? Just
1: just move on. Did, did we just just Okay. Did he hang are we he just stop drawing attention to it are and we, move on? Are we gonna get okay. clipped? Am I gonna get clipped? He'll probably clip Garrett, right? Okay. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, um so uh well um that was a good that was Speaking of clipped, God tried to clip Mitch McConnell today. Maybe.
0: of... <laughs>
3: Sorry, if you wish go back to you. Do you want to say anything else to the press? I'm
0: taking the privacy. Don't get
2: John. We'll take it back. Let's go back to you.
0: Go ahead, John.